Let me pray once again before we start. We are washed by the blood of the Lamb. Oh, truly we are. That's what we celebrate here this afternoon. Thank you, Lord. Thank you, Jesus, for shedding the blood on our behalf. Thank you for giving us access to the Father, giving us access to the throne of grace because of the blood. Because we have been sprinkled with the blood, the way into the Holy of Holies has been opened for us, and we can draw near. Spirit of God, I pray right now, as we go to this text of Scripture, I pray that you would remind us, and that you would take these truths that we're going to look at, and Lord, I pray that you would open our eyes to behold how wonderful they are. That you would help us to take them and walk away from here, holding on to them, and living this out in our walk. As we talk about prayer, I pray that we would not only talk about here, but this would be a way of life for us. In Jesus' name, amen. If you have your Bibles, I invite you to turn with me to Luke chapter 18. As I said earlier, the title for the sermon this afternoon is Faith to Pray When God Seems Silent. Last number of weeks, we have been working our way through the book of Ephesians. And Pastor Tony was taking us through the prayer of Paul in Ephesians chapter 1. Paul is locked up in prison when he's writing the book of Ephesians. He's 800 miles away from Ephesus. He can't come to them. He can't minister to them physically. But he can go to the Lord and pray on their behalf. This is how he introduced his prayer. In Ephesians 1.15, he says, For this reason I too, having heard of the faith in the Lord Jesus Christ which exists among you, and your love for all the saints, do not cease giving thanks for you, while making a mention of you in my prayers. Now today, I want us to ponder this concept that is summed up in this phrase, do not cease. Now, you can argue that prayer is both easy and hard. On one hand, prayer is really easy, because anyone can do it. Regardless of your age, regardless of your status, regardless of your position, regardless of your gender, regardless of your influence, you can pray. Not only that, you can pray in any place. You could be in a submarine on the bottom of the ocean, or you can be on a space station, and you can pray. Now, if that's not enough, you can pray at any time. God doesn't have operating hours, and you don't have to get in line. You can pray at any time. You can pray in any position. You can pray, pray as you're laying in bed, or as you're taking a walk in the park, as you're standing in line, as you're kneeling in your closet, in any position, at any place, everywhere you can pray. Because you have access to the king. So in that way, prayer is really, really easy. You, there, are, there aren't very many prerequisites for that. It doesn't matter who you are. You do not have excuse for not praying. Now on the other hand, you can argue that prayer is hard work. Prayer is hard. I mean, if it wasn't hard, you would need commands in scripture to tell you to persevere in prayer. You would need commands to tell you, pray without ceasing. I mean, if it was so easy and everybody was doing it, you wouldn't need that. You see, it's hard 
And one of the reasons why prayer is hard is because prayer requires faith. It requires faith because when you are praying, you are talking to someone you can't see. You're talking to someone who doesn't audibly respond to your request. And it takes prayer for you to get into your closet and to talk to that person. It takes prayer because as believers, when we pray, so often it seems that God is silent. God doesn't hear. So the question for us this afternoon is this. How do you persevere in prayer when God seems silent? Now Jesus himself gives an answer to this question in Luke chapter 18. Verses 1 through 8. Now before we dive into the text, I'll give you a few words about the context. Because we haven't been studying the Gospel of Luke. We didn't get to chapter 18. So how did we get here? Luke organizes his Gospel a bit differently than everyone else does. Or or, all other three Gospels that we have. The first two chapters of the Gospel of Luke are dedicated to the birth of Christ. And the events that surrounded that. In chapters 2 and 3, Luke gives us this detailed account of how Jesus began his public ministry at the age of 30. Beginning in Luke chapter 4 verse 19, all the way through Luke chapter 9 verse 50, Luke gives us an account of the ministry of Jesus Christ in Galilee, which was a northern part of Israel. Luke chapter 9 verse 51 is a transitional verse in the Gospel of Luke. Luke writes this, When the days were approaching for his ascension, he was determined to go to Jerusalem. So beginning from Luke chapter 9, verse 51, Jesus begins his final journey to Jerusalem. Final time when he's going to enter Jerusalem, and he's heading from northern part of Israel, he's heading down south to Jerusalem. Now this journey takes months. Jesus stops at various villages. He stops at different locations. And he takes that opportunity to teach the crowds. But primarily, this final journey is spent by Jesus focusing on the twelve. Focusing on the disciples because this is his final journey with them before he's going to be crucified. Now the immediate context of this parable that we're going to look at this afternoon is one of those conversations that Jesus had with his disciples. The subject of his conversation is his second coming. Now, I want you to see how this section is bracketed, because there's a reason why I read Luke chapter 17, beginning in verse 22 at the beginning of the service. Luke chapter two, Luke chapter 17, verse 22 begins the section, which ends in 18.8, which is the end of our section that we're going to study. Notice how he begins. Luke chapter 17, verse 22, And he said to the disciples, The days will come when you will long to see one of the days of the Son of Man, and you will not see it. They will say to you, look there, look here, do not go away, and do not run after them. For just as the lightning, when it flashes out of one part of the sky, shines to the other part of the sky, so will the Son of Man be in His day. Notice this section is going to focus on the second coming of Christ. And notice how it ends. Look at chapter 18, verse 8. However, when the Son of Man comes, will He find faith on the earth? It's bracketed by the Son of Man will come, and the Son of Man will come. So our parable here, verses 1 through 8, they're sandwiched in between or in this discussion about the second coming of Christ. Now here is a summary statement of what Jesus is teaching in the parable. This is what Jesus wants His disciples to learn, and this is what Jesus wants you and me to learn from the parable that we're going to study. 
He's saying that as God's elect, we must persevere by faith in prayer because we have a guarantee of future deliverance. That's a summary statement of everything I'm going to say today. As God's elect, we must persevere in prayer because we have a guarantee of future deliverance. Now notice in the section that Jesus outlines, he's saying the Son of Man is going to come back. And he's definitely going to come back. But you know what? It's going to take some time before he does. This is going to be a prolonged section. This is going to be a prolonged period of time. It is not going to be easy. It's not going to be easy. And therefore you must pray. It's not going to be easy. That's why he says things like 1733. Whoever seeks to keep his life will lose it. And whoever loses his life will preserve it. This period between his first coming and his second coming is going to be marked by trouble. It's going to be marked by tribulations. It's going to be a perilous time. And that's why in this section, he says, that's why you must pray. That's why you have to persevere in prayer because it will not be easy. And it will not be quick. Now to unpack this parable, I'm going to do so under three headings. First, in verse 1, Luke gives us the point of the parable. What's the point of this? And he tells us exactly what it is. Luke gives us a divinely inspired introduction to the parable, which explains why Jesus gave this parable in the first place. Then, as we look at the parable, we'll see this amazing picture of perseverance. That's what Jesus will show us in verses 2 through 5. And finally, we'll conclude the promise of provision. Because in verses 6 through 8, Jesus guarantees that the prayers of the elect that go to Him day and night will be answered. So the point of the parable, the picture of perseverance, and the promise of provision. Join me as I read Luke chapter 18, beginning in verse 1. It says, Now He was telling them a parable to show that at all times they ought to pray and not to lose heart. Saying, In a certain city there was a judge who did not fear God and did not respect man. There was a widow in that city. And she kept coming to him saying, Give me legal protection from my opponent. For a while he was unwilling. But afterward he said to himself, Even though I do not fear God, not respect man, yet because this widow bothers me, I will give her legal protection. Otherwise, by continually coming, she will wear me out. And the Lord said, Hear what the unrighteous judge said. Now will not God bring about justice for His elect who cry to Him day and night? And will He delay long over them? I tell you that He will bring about justice for them quickly. However, when the Son of Man comes, will He find faith on the earth? Let's begin with our first point, the point of the parable. Now, I love the clarity of verse 1. I mean, we believe in clarity of the Bible, but some things are clearer than others, right? And unless you are intentionally are trying to distort Scripture, you can't miss point of verse 1. In verse 1, Luke gives us a divine commentary. He gives us a divine introduction. And he says, this is why Jesus is giving this parable. Now, the aim of this parable is twofold. First of all, he says, the aim of this parable is to show that at all times, believers must pray. Now, again, the reason why I gave you the context, the broader context of this parable, is so that you understand that this is in the context of church age. 
The spirit before, between Jesus' first coming and second coming is known as a church age. We're living in this time. So this is just as applicable to you and me today as it was to the disciples to whom this was addressed. Now it's interesting, the tense of the verbs, verbs in this passage are very interesting. Notice it says, He was telling them. In perfect tense. In other words, Jesus was having a conversation with His disciples. This is not the only thing that He was saying to them. This was not an isolated parable that Jesus told them. So as they're walking, as they're traveling down to Jerusalem, Jesus is teaching His disciples. Jesus is training them. And one of the things that He was trying to teach them is that they ought to persevere in prayers. Now He's explaining this concept. And as He's explaining this concept, He gives this parable as an illustration of the truth that He's trying to teach them. Notice the verb, he, that you ought to pray. If you were to read that literally, it says that it is necessary to pray, present tense. Jesus was teaching them that at all times, it is necessary to pray. Now this phrase necessary, or this word necessary, Luke loves this word. And he talks about necessary, it was necessary for this to happen, it is necessary for that to happen. And in this case he says, it is necessary for you to pray. Notice it's not a suggestion, it's a necessity. These are orders from the headquarters. Jesus himself is saying that you ought to pray at all times. Now we place much emphasis here and we emphasize prayer a lot in this church. And we're not doing this because it's our preference or because we like it. But because Jesus said, it is necessary. Now prayer ought not to be the last resort that we have. Prayer ought to be the first thing that you do. I mean, perhaps you've said or you heard somebody say, Well, you know, I guess all we can do now is pray. All we can do? I mean, after all, we've done everything on our part. Everything's possible, but I mean, what can we do now? I mean, the only thing left to do is to talk to the most powerful being in the universe who has sovereign control over every person, over every situation, who has unlimited resources and unlimited power to accomplish whatever He wants, and the one who promised us that He will hear us when we come. Other than that, we can't do nothing. I mean, think about it. It's not supposed to be this last thing that like, oh, I have to do everything. I got to get my friends to do everything that they can in their power. And then, you know, Jesus is my spare tire. I pull Him out when I just broke down on the road. I have nowhere to go. I can't do nothing else. No, it's the other way around. He's saying prayer is literally, you're talking to the most powerful being in the universe, who absolutely controls every person, who controls every situation, who has unlimited power, who has unlimited resources, and the one who has made promises to you that if you come to me, I will hear and I will respond. This is not the last resort. This is the first resort. And this is what Jesus is saying, because you will go through times in life when you will be tempted not to pray. And Jesus knows that. That's why He has to teach this. That's why He has to give this parable. Not only that, Jesus says here, the second lesson that you are to learn from this parable is that you ought not to lose heart. You ought not to be discouraged. You ought not to give up. In fact, the, the, word, the root word of this word here, lose heart, is, means evil. You can translate this as not to give in to evil. That you ought to always pray and not to give in to evil. You see, we give up and we stop praying because God doesn't answer how we want 
Oh, he doesn't answer when we want. Right? And that causes discouragement. I've been praying for this thing again and again and again. I've been praying for myself. I've been praying for my family. We've been praying for our church. We've been praying for our nations. And things don't turn for the better. How do you continue to pray? One preacher put it this way. He says, how do you continue to pray when your prayer goes to a voicemail? And you don't know when God's going to check it. Like sometimes you have this urgent need and you need to call somebody and then their phone goes to a voicemail. Right? Like, no, I need, I need to talk to you right now. He says, like, sometimes when you're praying, it feels like that. It feels like your prayers don't go too far. God doesn't hear. God doesn't answer. And you see, you will be in circumstances like this. You, there will be times when you will disappoint yourself, when others will disappoint you, when the circumstances will not be as favorable. What do you do then? How do you continue to pray? And notice, Jesus is saying, in those circumstances, this is what I want you to remember. This is what I want you to learn from this parable. That even when that is the case, even when you feel like that, even when all of that is true, you still do not have right not to pray and not to lose heart. No, I, I don't want you to lose heart. I want you to continue to persevere in prayer, even when God seems silent. That's the point. Now, as we consider the parable itself, I want you to see the picture of perseverance that Jesus paints for us in verses 2 through 5. Now, this is a parable. A parable is a fictional story. It is a story that Jesus made up. Now, this story that Jesus made up has two characters. The first character is a judge. Look at verse 2. In a certain city there was a judge who did not fear God, and did not respect men. Now again, keep in mind that this story reflects reality, but it is not an actual account. Jesus made it up. Now when you make up a story, you can make it up as you wish. You can have as many characters there as you want. You can have the characters that you want. You can have them do whatever it is that you want them to do, because it's your story. Now this is Jesus' story. Jesus made it up. And Jesus did it intentionally. Notice the first character. is a judge. Now we may ask, what is the role of a judge? The role of a judge is to uphold justice. Right? That's what judges do. Judges punish the wicked, and they vindicate the righteous. That is basic summary of their jo- job. That's what they do. And so Jesus begins this parable, and the first person he lays out, there's a judge. Now, he plays, this plays a significant role in the story. And the reason why this plays a significant role in the story, because I want you to notice what happens here. When the widow comes to this judge, she's not asking him for a favor. She's not asking him for mercy. She's asking him for justice. Notice twice the text says here, verse 3, Give me legal protection from my opponent. Verse 5 says, judge says himself, I will give her what? Legal protection. Notice how Jesus concludes the parable. Verse 7 says, Now will not God bring about justice for His elect? Verse 8 says, I tell you that He will bring about justice for them. Now all four words, they basically come from exactly the same word. It's the word justice. So this widow goes to the judge and she's pleading for justice. She's pleading, pleading for legal protection. Now, Jesus gives three descriptions of this judge. 
The first one says, he did not fear God. Now, we have many godless judges today, right? And it's not, a, it's not a surprise. But think about the context in which this is written. Jesus is talking, about, talking to the Jews. He's talking in the context of a nation of Israel. And the Old Testament clearly lays out the kind of people that ought to take positions of judges, right? Because they were supposed to uphold the law. They were supposed to practice righteousness. The Old Testament lays out qualifications for judges, the book of Proverbs says, for example, Proverbs chapter 1, verse 7, the fear of the Lord is the beginning of knowledge. That's where everything starts. And notice the first thing that Jesus says about this judge, that he did not fear God. Fear of God is the foundation upon which knowledge, wisdom, discretion is built. And this judge lacked the very foundation. Well, not only does he not fear God, it says that he did not respect men. This man had no shame. You see, while some people do not have the fear of God, but they care about their own name. They don't want to do things or say things that brings reproach on them. Now, you might not feel obligated to please God, but you might feel like you have to preserve your own name. This was not the case here. Now, again, remember... That this takes place in the honor and shame culture of Israel. It was an honor and shame culture, just like in the Middle East today. You would not do things that would bring shame on you and on your family. You would not disgrace yourself like that. Why? Because you cared about your name. Because there was some honor and you wanted to avoid all shame. That's where we get the phrase, shame on you. Right? Because you're publicly trying to shame a person. Hey, you act like that, you're bringing shame on yourself. Right? Now, Jesus says, this judge has no fear of God, and he has no shame before men. And notice it is not just Jesus' assessment, because this is what he says of himself. Verse 4 says, even though I do not fear God, nor respect men. Does not fear God, has no shame. And number 3, Jesus summarizes the character of this judge in verse 6, where he says that he was unrighteous. Verse 6 says, hear what the unrighteous judge said. Notice, by not fearing God, he broke the greatest commandment. By not respecting men, he broke the second greatest commandment. And you break the first and second commandment, you break the whole law, and therefore you're unrighteous. And that's the picture that Jesus is painting here. Unrighteous judge. Now the second character is a widow. Again, verse 3 says, there was a widow in that city. The contrast is intentional. The judge has all the power. The widow has none. In that society, widows were the most destitute. She's alone. She's helpless. She's desperate. I mean, Old Testament gives clear instruction to judges and to the officials of how they ought to care for widows. Listen to how seriously God took mistreatment of widows. Exodus 22, verse 22 says, You shall not afflict any widow or orphan. If you afflict him at all, and if he does cry out to me, I will surely hear his cry, and my anger will be kindled, and I will kill you with the sword, and your wives shall become widows and your children fatherless. You think God takes that seriously? That's how seriously he took it. In fact, God is described as one who cares for widows. 
Deuteronomy 10.18 says, He, Yahweh, executes justice for the orphan and the widow and shows His love to the alien by giving him food and clothing. You read through the Old Testament, and very often God rebuked the nation of Israel for failing to take care of widows and orphans. Isaiah chapter 1, verse 21 is one such example. He says, Your rulers are rebels and companions of thieves. Everyone loves a bride and chases after rewards. They do not defend the orphan, nor does the widow's plea come before them. Now this is a perfect description of what is taking place in this parable. And notice, this destitute widow, she comes to the judge with a request. And she says, give me legal protection from my opponent. Again, notice the nature of her request. She is asking for what was rightly hers. She's not asking for anything more than that. She's asking for what was rightly hers. Notice, the judge was obligated to provide protection for this widow. She's saying, give me legal protection. Notice she says she has an opponent, and this opponent wanted to take advantage of her. Most likely we're talking about a financial deal, because, you know, scammers, they always go for easy targets. This is a widow. She does not have a man to stand up for her. She doesn't have anybody to protect her. And so somebody is trying to take advantage of her. Somebody is trying to rob her. She's vulnerable. She's a target. And she's coming to this judge, and she's not pleading with him for mercy. She's not asking for a favor. She comes and says, listen, do your job. That's what she's saying. Give me legal protection. Why? Because judges uphold righteousness and they punish the wicked. And here is a man who is trying to commit wickedness and she is being taken advantage of. And it was the responsibility of a judge to protect her. He had right. He had ability to do so. Now even if that was not the case, if the widow was to plead for mercy and ask what wasn't hers, he was still supposed to do it, right? Because the passages that we read. Because you're supposed to show mercy to those who are in need. You're supposed to show mercy to widows and orphans. And notice she keeps coming and coming. She kept coming to him. This woman would not be deterred. No one would stop her. Now perhaps this judge was wicked and he was waiting for a bribe, but she had none to give. Perhaps he thought that there were other cases that are more important than hers. But this man has no fear of God. He has no shame before man. And he could care less about the plight of this poor widow. So the two main characters are the judge and the widow. Now look at verse 8-4. It says, For a while he was unwilling. Now again, we don't know how long this while lasted. Notice it wasn't, that because, it wasn't that he couldn't help her, but it's that he wouldn't help her. That's the whole point here. He could help her. Literally, the text says he did not want to help her. That was the issue. He had obligation and he had ability, but he had no desire. You know, had this widow given up, she would never have gotten what she needed. But she kept coming and coming, and by her persistence, she wore out his resistance. That's what happened. She kept coming, and coming, and coming, and coming again. And it came to the point where he couldn't take it anymore. Notice it says, even though I do not, he said that to himself. He was like, man, I'm getting tired of this woman here. Even though I do not fear God, nor respect men, yet because this widow bothers me, 
I will give her legal protection. Otherwise, by continually coming, she will wear me out. Notice, he says, I am going to give her what I ought to give to her. But I'm not going to do so because I want to honor God. I'm not going to do so because, oh, I found some shame. No, I'm going to give this to her out of self-preservation. Notice, she says, she keeps bothering me. She's nuisance. She's annoying. Every single morning I walk to my office and she's right there. Every single night I leave for home and she's right there. And on my lunch break, she's there again. She's nuisance. She bothers me. She, and she's annoying. Now it's interesting, this phrase is very interesting. It says, she will wear me out. This word is used only one other time in the Bible. It's used in 1 Corinthians chapter 9. Where Paul says this, Therefore I run in such a way as not without aim. I box in such a way as not as beating the air. But I discipline, that's the word, my body, and make it my slave, so that after I have preached to others, I myself will not be disqualified. ASV translates this as I buffet my body. Not buffet my body, but I buffet my body. You know, notice he uses illustration here, boxing. When the two guys are in the ring and they're trying to knock each other out, literally the word means to give a black eye. That's the idea here. That's what it means. To strike under the eye. Boxers, that's what they do. They're trying to knock each other out and give a blue eye or black eye to one another, right? Paul says, this is what I do to my body. I discipline my body. I beat down my body so that my body does what I tell it to do, not what it, I do what it tells me to do. And in this case, this judge says, listen, this woman is going to wear me out. She's going to give me a black eye. I better stop. I better do what she asks. Notice this widow has nothing going for her except her persistence. She has a problem that she cannot solve. She has an opponent who's taking advantage of her. And the only remedy that she has is to go to this judge who is supposed to provide legal protection for her. That's why she is so persistent. I mean, what a picture of persistence. If you wanted to paint any other story, come up with any other illustration, I don't know if you would. But this woman, again and again, this vulnerable woman, this parable is given here so that you don't lose heart. What an example of this. It would be so easy to lose heart in a situation. It's like I was there yesterday and day before yesterday and a month before yesterday. And But no, she kept coming and coming and coming. She was rejected again and again and again. And she would not lose heart. That's what Jesus is point. That is how he has given us a picture of persistence. You want to see what persistence looks like? Like this. You have a judge who doesn't want to help you. Judge who care, could care less about you. And you keep going and going and going and going. Now let's finally look at the promise of provision that we have in verses 6 through 8. Notice Jesus is using this parable in order to teach His disciples and to teach us to persevere in prayer. Isn't that the point of this parable? Now, having looked at the details of verses 2 through 5, let's consider parallels that Jesus draws in this context here. Now, first, what I want us to do is I want us to compare and contrast judge with God. In what ways are they similar and in what ways are they different? Well, in what ways are they similar? Well, first of all, both are in position of authority, right? This woman goes to the judge... Because the judge is 
in position of authority. He's able to make decisions, he's able to write a sentence, and she would be freed from her opponent. Both are in position of authority. When we as God's children, we go to the Lord, why would we go to Him? Because He's the one in authority. He's in control of all things. So both are in authority. Second, we can say that both have resources to answer their request. She went to the judge because judge had resources. All he had to do is he just write out his sentence and write out the decision of the court and she would be released from her opponent. He would solve her problem. Why do we go to the Lord? Because our Lord controls all things. He's sovereign over all circumstances and all situations. He has power and resources to answer our prayers. So both are in position of authority. Both have resources to answer. Number three, both have obligation to answer. Now this might sound a bit radical, but bear with me. You know, Jesus came up with the story. I didn't. Jesus could have framed this in any way he wanted to. And yet he framed it in legal terms. You see, this widow, she came to the judge and she was asking for what was rightly hers. The judge had obligation to provide for her. He had obligation to defend her and to give her legal protection. Notice he was unrighteous because he was unwilling to do what he was supposed to do. Now here's a concept that is clearly taught all throughout Scripture. That positions of authority come with responsibility. It's not only that you have authority, but you have responsibility. For example, if you're an elder in a church, it's a position of authority. But you see, that position of authority comes with responsibility, that you ought to be servant leader to everyone. You can't just walk around and claim that you have authority without doing the part that you're supposed to do. Right? You can't do that. Think about your work environment. You have a boss. Everyone in the company, they submit to the boss. He gives them rules. He gives them orders. They follow what he says. But you know what? As a boss, he has responsibility. A lot more than the guy who's on the bottom. Right? He has responsibility to take care of the employees, to guide the company, to lead. And if he fails, the whole company fails. So he has responsibility with his position of authority. Think about fathers. Fathers, your children must submit to you. Is that in the Bible? Yeah, it is in the Bible. But you know what? You have responsibility to provide and to protect. You have that responsibility. You can't just demand that everybody honors you without you taking and doing what you're supposed to do. You're supposed to do that. So notice, positions of authority, they come with responsibility. And you know what? The same thing applies to God Himself. You see, if you are a child of God, He takes the responsibility for providing and protecting you. If you are a child of God, this is what God, God legally obligates Himself to take care of you. In other words, you have a legal right for your father to take care of you. That's the point. Listen to Hebrews chapter 13 verse 5. It says, make sure that your character is free from the love of money. Being content with what you have. Why? For he himself had said, I will never desert you, nor will I ever forsake you. So that we confidently say, the Lord is my helper. I will not be afraid. What will men do to me? Notice the promise. 
This is the promise that the father makes to his children that I promise you, I will never desert you. I will never forsake you. I will always come to your rescue. I mean, what a promise. And this is the promise that he makes to you because he is your father. Now, the judge had responsibility to protect this widow because that was his job. If your heavenly father is in heaven, he says, it is my job to take care of my children. And Jesus is saying that, hey, we're talking about a context between first coming and the second coming. The time will be long. The time will be difficult. And you have heavenly father in heaven who has promised that he will never abandon you. Who has promised to always take care of you. He took legal obligation upon himself. And that's why your responsibility is to run into the throne room and to plead with whatever requests you have. That's what he's saying in this text. So in these ways, the judge and God are similar. But you know, there is a huge contrast. There's a huge contrast that we have to notice that God is not like this judge. Notice this judge was unrighteous, but God is righteous. This judge was unwilling, but God is willing. This judge had no concern for the widow, but God has concern for his people. I mean, look at the conclusion. Look at verse 6. And the Lord said, hear what the unrighteous judge said. Jesus wants you to hear what this unrighteous judge says. And he wants you to draw a contrast that, listen, your father who is in heaven, he's unlike this judge. This judge just declared that he doesn't fear God. He doesn't care for man. He's unrighteous, but he's just going to do it because he bothers him. But he's like... Your God is not like that. Your God is not bothered by your prayer. Your God is not annoyed by your prayers. No, He's absolutely different. And notice the question He asks. Will not God bring about what? Justice for His elect. Notice what He's asking. Can the God of justice not bring about justice? Is that possible? No. And justice for who? He says, justice for his elect. Now we talk about elect, not just because we like election, right? But because Jesus says it here. Notice Jesus identifies his children. He identifies his disciples. He identifies us as believers, as those who are elect. Elect are the ones with whom from eternity past, God has chosen to have a relationship If you're a child of God, it is because God has chosen you from eternity past. Jesus Christ has come. Jesus Christ has lived a perfect life on your behalf. Jesus Christ went to the cross. He took your sin, died for them, paid for them, endured the wrath of God on the cross. And on the third day, He walked out of that tomb. Then when you were born, throughout your life, God calls you. God justifies you. God regenerates you. God adopts you into His family. And do you think after he has done all that, he's going to leave you hanging? No. He makes a promise that I am going to get you to the end. Remember that verse we looked at a couple of weeks, a couple of months ago? In Romans 8.32, he says, He who did not spare his son, but delivered him over for our soul, how will he not also with him freely give us all things? Is it possible that God has done all that for you? Is it possible that God took his own son, gave him for you, and then after that, he says, oh, I'm sorry, I, um, no, it's, it's not possible. No, he says, God will bring about justice for his elect. God is not like this judge. He's not bothered by your prayers. He's not annoyed by you. Instead, this God invites you to run to him. This God invites you to come into his presence. Well, isn't, isn't that the whole point of this parable? 
that you should always pray. Which means that Jesus is teaching his disciples that God wants you to always draw near to him. He wants you to always come to him. He wants you to always pray and to never lose heart. He wants you to have boldness to run into the throne room of God with boldness. With confidence. Because he has given you this promise. Look at verse 7 ends. And will he delay long over them? This is a somewhat difficult phrase to interpret. The word for delay is the same word that is usually translated as patience, forbearance, long suffering. Same word for patience. You could read a verse this way. Will not God bring about justice for his elect who cry to him day and night, even though he is patient over them? Notice, for one reason or another, many times God does not answer the prayers of his elect affirmatively as soon as they call upon him. It is true. It is true that very often you will call upon the Lord and you don't have immediate response or God doesn't answer immediately as you want Him to respond. Now why does God do that? Why does God make us wait? Why does He seem silent at times? Now there are many reasons, but I want to give you at least three to ponder. The first reason God doesn't answer immediately, number one, to maximize His glory. That's the first response. God doesn't answer immediately to maximize His glory. Now think about the point of praying, the ultimate goal of praying. The ultimate goal of God answering prayers is so that He would get glory. Right? The ultimate goal is not that you get what you want, but that God gets what He wants. In John 14, 13, Jesus says this, Whatever you ask in my name, I will do. For what reason? So that the Father may be glorified in the Son. So it goes like this. He says, I want you to pray to the Father in my name, so that when He responds in my name, you would in turn praise Him and give Him glory. That's the goal. That's the point of answering prayer. Now, God has intrinsic holiness. He has intrinsic glory. But what God wants to multiply the ascribed glory so that more and more people would worship Him, so that more and more people would give, give, give glory to Him. That's what God wants. He wants more glory for Himself. I was thinking about an example from the Bible to illustrate this. Think back to John chapter 11. John chapter 11 is the chapter where Jesus raised Lazarus from the dead. Now, could Jesus have prevented Lazarus from dying? Absolutely. Martha and Mary, no doubt, were praying for Lazarus. They were hoping that Jesus would come in time. In fact, when Jesus did come, she said, Lord, if you had been here, my brother brother would not have died. But notice, Jesus allowed Lazarus to die. Not because he didn't love him, but because he did. Now this doesn't fit our minds, but listen to what John says. Now Jesus loved Martha and her sister and Lazarus. So when he heard that he was sick, he stayed two days longer in the place where he was. What? That's not what we expect. We would expect John said, Jesus loved Martha and his sister. 
Martha and her sister and Lazarus. So when he heard that he was sick, he immediately got up and went. But that's not what the text says. The text says that he stayed two more days to wait until Lazarus would die. We're like, why? Why? The guy needs help at the moment. But notice it says, because Jesus loved him. Why did he do that? In verse 4, he says this. When Jesus heard this, he said, This sickness is not to end in death, but for the glory of God, so that the Son of God may be glorified by it. Notice Jesus stayed longer so that Lazarus would die. And then when he would come back and raise him from the dead, God would get more glory than him just healing Lazarus and preventing him from dying. Wow. So we see here that there is a delay in the answer because in the end, he would get more glory. Now you might say, well, listen, uh, that's not cool. I mean, he's getting glory at my expense. I'm like, I'm suffering here. Lazarus had to die. Martha and Mary. Well, first of all, he's God. He can do whatever he wants to do, right? And we've got to get that one, right? He's God and you're not. And I'm not. But notice that his greater glory is not at your expense. Because his greater glory results in your greater good. Those two things are not competing. And so at times, God will allow us to go through things, and He will not immediately answer our prayers, because He's going to maximize that for His glory. Second reason, why God sometimes doesn't answer immediately, is to mature our faith. So first one is to maximize His glory. Second one, to mature our faith. James 1 says this, Consider all joy, my brethren, when you encounter various trials. Know that the testing of your faith produces endurance. You see, unanswered prayer is a test of faith. God is testing your faith. In fact, look at how Jesus ends this parable. Look at verse 8. The final question he asks is, However, when the Son of Man comes, will he find faith on the earth? This is seemingly an odd way to finish the parable. Like, what is the relationship here? But notice what Jesus is saying. He says, the question is not whether God is willing to bring about justice for His elect who cry out to Him day and night. The only question is if you're willing to persevere in faith and continue to pray, even when God seems silent. That's the point. He's saying, when the Son of Man comes, will He find people who will actually take me at my word and will continue to pray and not lose heart? That's what He's saying. And what does it take to continue to pray? It takes faith. It takes faith that even though I don't see it with my eyes, I see it with my eyes of faith that yes, I am talking to God, and God is hearing me, and God is at work, and God is going to accomplish, and God is going to bring about His purposes. And that's what He's saying. And notice, unanswered prayer is a test of faith. Whether you're going to continue to believe, whether you're going to continue to persevere in your prayers, whether you're going to give up, lose heart, or whether you're going to say, hey, my God has made a promise to me that He's going to answer in His own time. So I'm going to continue to run to Him. I'm going to continue to pray. I'm going to continue to have faith. The best answer is coming because my God has promised that He will bring about justice for me. You see, sometimes the best answer from God is to wait. Because God wants to change you. God wants to build your faith. So one, to maximize His glory. Two, to mature our faith. And three, to mold our character. 
That's not the reason why God sometimes does not answer immediately. Famous verse, Romans 8, 28. God causes all things to work together for good. To those who love God, those who are called according to His purposes. And what is the main goal of God? Is to conform those whom He called to the image of His Son. That's God's aim for you and me. God's ultimate goal in your life. Not so that you would be happy and have all the things that you ask for. But so that you would be like Jesus. That's His goal. And so sometimes God does not give us what we want. Because He says, by me not giving you what you want, you have to trust me. You have to rely on me. You have to wait for me. And I'm going to mold you. I'm going to change you. I'm going to refine you. And this process of refinement is not always pleasant. Right? Whenever you refine anything, it's not pleasant. In order to refine gold, you have to heat it up really bad. Ever been, you know, work with wood? To shape it into image, you got to cut things off, shave things off, sand things off. It's not always pleasant. But the end result is beautiful. And that's what God is saying here. That sometimes He doesn't answer the prayer right away. Because He wants to change your character. Because He wants to mold something in you. Think about Apostle Paul. He says, three times I prayed that the Lord would remove a thorn from the flesh. Whatever that was. And God said, no. Because the best thing for you is that you would have that so that your character would be conformed to Christ. So there isn't a great example of this. Why does God delay? To maximize His glory. To mature our faith. To mold our character. Look at the final statement Jesus makes in verse 8. He says, I tell you that He will bring about justice for them quickly. Notice, this is a promise. This is a promise of provision that He says, if you continue to come, if you continue to pray, I will answer. Are you going to take me at my word? Are you going to believe me? This is the promise. Now notice the promise is not only that, hey, you keep coming, you keep praying, you know what, one day I'll answer. But notice how God sustains you through the time before you get what you're asking for. God sustains your faith. God gives you grace to persevere. God gives you grace to continue. And it's not only that, oh, I just want to get that thing that I'm praying for. No, in the meantime, God is sufficient. God continues to provide. And then when He does provide, when He does answer, it's going to be like this. He'll answer quickly. He will come fast. Again, think about the context of the second coming. You're looking forward to the future when Christ will return. And you're looking at our world and it is messed up. Government is messed up. The ideas that they're pushing are messed up. Everything around us seems to crumble and fall apart. And people are praying like, Lord, would you come? And he says, hey, when I come, everything's going to be quick like this. I mean, seven years, but be quick. Yes, it will come. Salvation will come. Justice for the elect will come. Listen, the world may condemn you. Your friends may betray you. But he says, God will vindicate you. This is the ultimate promise you have. Because God cares for you. Because what you ought to focus on is not yourself, but what you ought to focus on is the character of God. And God is not like this judge. He's willing to hear. He wants you to come. He wants you to draw near. And He gives you a promise that I will answer. Now we compared judge with God. But in in this conclusion, I want you to compare yourself to this widow. Are you as persistent as she is? 
You see, Jesus is commanding her as an example. He's saying that you ought to be like her. She's, she's persistent with a judge who hates her, who despises her. But we have a father who delights in us. We have a father who invites us. Because prayer is not just an opportunity for, to, for you to give God your laundry list. No. Prayer is an opportunity for you to commune with God. And He promised that He will deliver. The only question is, will you and I have enough faith to continually come again and again and again, even when it doesn't seem like they're an answer? Finally, perseverance in prayer is not due to the lack of faith, but is a sign of faith. You know, some people say, you know, if you keep coming with the same thing to the Lord, it just means that you don't believe Him. I mean, why would you want to keep coming to Him? Now, there is a sense in which that's true. For example, 1 John 1.9 says that if we confess our sins, He's faithful and righteous to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. Notice you have here a promise. That if you, as a believer, sin against the Lord, and you come to Him and you confess your sin, God says, I promise you that I will forgive and I will cleanse you from all unrighteousness. That's a promise from God. It's right here, black and white, written down. Right Now, if you've sinned, and if you've confessed your sin to the Lord, you have to take it by faith that He has forgiven you. And He says, I'm going to take your sin, I'm going to throw him in the deepest lake and put a no fishing sign on there. Nobody's going over that. I'm not coming back to it. I have forgiven you. So if I have forgiven you, you don't have to go back to it. You don't have to worry about it. And every single day, go back and confess again the same thing again and again. And tomorrow morning, confess again and again. No, if you've genuinely confessed your sin to the Lord, He says, I have forgiven you. Take me at my word. Believe me. But, this does not mean that we don't come to the Lord repeatedly with the same requests. Unless we have a promise of God that He says that I have already done that for you, or I've already am doing that already. But if you come into the Lord, say for the salvation of your loved ones, and you're coming again and again and again, you're praying for a health issue, you're praying for your sanctification, you're coming again and again and again. This is not a sign of the lack of faith, but this is a sign of faith. Jesus prayed three times in the garden. Was that a lack of faith? No. Because he's communing with God. He's talking with God. Prayer is a means of fellowship with the Lord. And when you come to him, you're going to bring the same things again and again and again. And sometimes your prayer will sound similar because you're coming to him and you're dealing with the same issue. I mean, you do that with your friends. You do that with your family. When you're going through midst, in the midst of turmoil and you're pondering the same thing again and again the whole day, when you get together in the evening, you're going to talk about that one thing, right? And if you're dealing with the same thing tomorrow, you're going to talk about it again. And so that's what he's saying. If you have ongoing fellowship, ongoing relationship with the Lord, the sign of faith is that you go to Him again and again and again and pray. And if you continue to pray, you have a promise that He will hear, that He will bring about justice. For his elect. Why? Because he cares for you. Because he loves you. May God help us to persevere in faith, to persevere in prayer, because we have a guarantee of deliverance. Lord Jesus, thank you for this amazing example. Thank you, Lord, for the word of God that leaves this for us. And I pray that we would take this and we would live this. 
that every day of our lives we would run to the throne of grace. We thank you for the doors that are wide open by the blood of Christ, for the access that we have to the Father. And we thank you for the promise that you will hear, that you will answer in your time, according to your will. But we will continue to pray. Thank you. In Christ's name, amen.